Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation by Dr. Michael Wolf is entitled, Nature's God, on the Beauty and Wonder of the Natural World. It was recorded on July 30th, 2023, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Lawrence. Portions of this presentation were recorded via Zoom. pleasure to introduce the speaker. Mike Wolf, our speaker, is a Matthias P. Meritus Professor of Medicinal Chemistry at KU. And Mike, you didn't answer my email about where you're from originally. No, Hills, Hillside, New Jersey. Hillside, New Jersey. They have hills in northwestern New Jersey, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, so his physical journey, or his odyssey, if you will, started in Hillside, New Jersey. His intellectual journey shifted into second gear, I guess, at the Philadelphia College for Pharmacy and Science, where he earned a BS in chemistry, and into high gear at the University of Kansas, where he received his PhD in medicinal chemistry, uh, working with Ron Borchardt in 1990. He did postdocs at KU and National Institutes for Health, and he branched out into cell biology at NIH, uh, then joined the University of Tennessee in 1994. After five years, he left Knoxville for Boston. Memphis. Oh, you were in yes, Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee? Yeah, Memphis. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. The, health, the, the health sciences. <laughs> okay. Completely on the other end of Tennessee here. I thought you were leaving the mountains, but uh, you were leaving the Mississippi. Okay. Um, and he had joint appointments in neurology at Harvard Medical School and at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he arrived at the latter institution uh, about the same time as our first grandson was born in that hospital in 1999. Uh, you didn't see him there, did you? <laughs> All right, in uh, 2016, he had his second coming to the uh, University of Kansas as the emeritus professor, and his focus is on the origins of Alzheimer's, which should be of interest to some of us. So he showed up at UUFL uh, very soon thereafter, I think, uh, sometimes on his bicycle, uh, sometimes on his way to a marathon or a small triathlon or some related masochism. <laughs> and uh, among sundry awards on his Vita, uh, there's one from the uh, Pharmaceutical Society of Japan and the Potemkin Prize from the American Academy of Neurology. And sometimes I want you to explain why it's the Potemkin Prize. But, <laughs> well, I mean, why after a Russian battleship? But, um, so for today's program, we, we wanted Mike to discuss some of his research. For example, um, the <clears throat> excuse me, amyloid beta forming tri tripeptide cleavage mechanism <laughs> of gamma secretase. But he chose to reflect on his spiritual journey. So nature's God on the beauty and wonder of the natural world. So Mike, sure. So. 
Thanks, Paul, for that nice introduction. I'd be happy to give a separate program on that tripeptide cleavage mechanism, but uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll 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 focus today on on nature's God and the beauty and wonder of the natural world. So yeah, I chose this uh, topic. Um, it was in the wake of um, uh, Paul Graham's talk on his spiritual journey, or uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, <laughs> his uh, spiritual journey, um, where he talked about Kierkegaard and inspired me. I could, I could give a kind of a philosophical uh, presentation too. So yeah, this, um, so, so this is broken up into two parts. One is kind of a history, history of philosophy, if you will, uh, um, talk about the origins of the term nature's God. Um, and then I, uh, the second half will be some illustrations, actually videos, visualizations of um, molecular mechanisms in biology that um, inspire, you know, awe and wonder in, in, in me. Um, so that's, you know, so when I talk about the beauty and wonder of the natural world for this talk, what I want to specifically focus on are these things that happen um, at the microscopic um, level and the atomic level. So I, I think, I hope you find that worthwhile. So nature's God, um, this term appears in the Declaration of Independence. <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, here's the very start of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent opinion, a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So, so these, these are words that Jefferson wrote, um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, we, we, we never really discuss that, you know, we always talk about, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and uh you know all men are created equal um but uh you know th this term in here is, is really never discussed and so why did jefferson write that you know the laws of nature nature is god and what does that mean um so jefferson as well as many of the founders they were deists you know they were so so you know that's also something that's typically not discussed in our american history classes in school um, yeah, so what, what is, what is deism? So deism is a, is, is a, is a philosophy. It's a theology and it was a leading philosophy in theology during the enlightenment. Um, <clears throat> it's the belief that God created the universe and does not intervene and that the laws of nature are logical, reliable, and sufficient evidence for the existence of God. So it rejects revelation and miracles. You know, God doesn't intervene. <laughs> the, the natural world runs on its own laws. Uh, and, and, you know, so this is illustrated by uh, the fact that Jefferson created an abridged version of the New Testament with all the miracles cut out, including the resurrection. <laughs> and, you know, so for things like that, you know, Jefferson was labeled as being an atheist. Um, this caused him a lot of trouble during his presidential run of 1800 <laughs> um but um well and 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 1796 for that matter 
Um, yeah, so, you know, so Jefferson, though, was heavily influenced by John Locke. So John Locke was uh, an English philosopher from the previous century <clears throat> and really a central thinker during uh, uh, that inspired the Enlightenment. He, he founded a, a, a philosophical school of thought called empiricism. And, and what is empiricism? It's the idea that true knowledge comes only or primarily from sensory experience. You know, so you just you just don't pull things theoretically out of your head. You know, if you want to understand if you anything really, you you have to experience it through through uh, your sensory experiences. You know, if you if you um, and and so this also laid the philosophical foundations for self government and and the social contract. <clears throat> and he argued that uh, people have natural rights, including the right to. And this is this is direct quote: "Life, liberty, and property." So again, that that gets echoed in the Declaration, right? So Jefferson wrote, "Life, liberty," but you know he, I think, wisely changed property property to the pursuit of happiness. So I mean, we can have a discussion about the implications of that. That's that's a whole other <laughs> matter. But Jefferson was influenced by John Locke, and that's one example where you know we see john locke's thinking showing up in the in the declaration of independence but john locke himself was influenced by uh baroque spinoza so spinoza um he was a contemporary of uh john locke's at least for a period of time actually uh died relatively young and i'll, I'll mention that in a moment he was born in Amsterdam of Portuguese Jewish immigrants. <clears throat> and he, he lived a simple life as a lens maker. So he, 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 he was a lens maker. That's how he made his living. Um, and it's, it's thought that uh, he, he died young at the, at the age of 44 or 45 um, from a lung disorder, a lung disease. And it's thought that um, that was a consequence of him inhaling, you know, glass dust for many years and so <clears throat> but you know him being a lens he lived a simple life and he was a lens maker and that gave him time uh to work on philosophy so he spent a, a, a lot of his time his spare time <laughs> doing that and he wrote foundational philosophical treaties that arguably inspired the enlightenment so he he argued that God and nature are one and the same. Everything is part of and a manifestation of God. The universe came into form and, you know, from, came, came into being from and of God through logical processes. So what is the implication of that? God had no choice. The universe had to be what it is. And so, you know, this idea that uh, God and nature are one and the same it's really thought to be quite heretical. Uh, and he was labeled an atheist uh, for that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and you, you, could, you, you could see that um, how this concept of God is quite different from <laughs> the prevailing views at the time, this idea of, uh, you know, the biblical God that's quite anthropomorphic. Um, 
And, um, uh, you know, so, and, and this idea that God and nature are one and the same, people just thought, well, you know, you've just elevated nature to being a God and you've pretty much eliminated <laughs> God. Um, uh, you know, arguably they had a point. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so Spinoza influenced Locke, but he also influenced, you know, uh, you know, centuries later of philosophers and scientists. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is Pierre Simon Laplace, who was a French scholar um, in, the, in the late uh, 18th, early 19th century. Uh, so he, he, his work was important to the development of engineering, mathematics, statistics, physics, astronomy, and philosophy. And he's really <laughs> um, uh, quite prolific. He wrote a five-volume series on celestial mechanics, which was basically like astrophysics at the time. Um, and so Napoleon famously asked him, you know, where God fit into his whole understanding of the workings of the heavens. And Laplace replied, sir, I have no need for that hypothesis. <laughs> and then, you know, more, more, more famously, there's Albert Einstein, uh, who really needs no introduction, but he was a central figure in the revolutionary reshaping of scientific understanding of nature that modern physics accomplished in the first decades of the 20th century. So this is really nicely illustrated in the new movie Oppenheimer, which I've seen. It's really, it's really a great movie. And um, yeah, Einstein laid the foundation <coughs> for quantum mechanics um, in the same way that, that Newton laid the foundation for, for classical mechanics and physics. Um, but yeah, so he, he just really changed our understanding of the, the, the the, the physical basis of, of the universe. Um, and um, he was asked, you know, if he believed in God, whenever he was asked if he believed in God, he, he, he would give this answer. And, and, and this is actually um, written uh, somewhere. I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists not in a God who concerns himself with fates and actions of human beings. And so, yeah, so, and I think, you know, you can appreciate how Spinoza's ideas from, you know, now, um, you know, it's well over 300 years ago, um, have influenced us even today. And so, yeah, you know, so I, I you know, I, I uh, in putting this to talk together, if you're interested in, in more about this, there are two books that I've read uh, um, uh, and referred back to in putting this talk together. Uh, two books by Matthew Stewart, uh, The Courtier and the Heretic, Leibniz, Spinoza, and the Fate of God in the Modern World, and then Nature's God, The Heretical Origins of the American Republic. Really, really great, great, great reading. I, I re highly recommend them. So just more about the implications of Spinoza's philosophy. So again, on the, <clears throat> you know, he was labeled an atheist. On the surface, it seems indistinguishable from pantheism on the one hand 
and atheism on the other. So if God and nature are one and the same, you know, God is everywhere in nature, it's kind of like a pantheism. But, you know, you can also argue that, you know, well, there really isn't a God. You just, you know, made, made a God out of, out of nature and it's, 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 it's like atheism. And this idea of pantheism, of course, has been in you know various human cultures for you know millennia. Um, but Spinoza formalized the idea, uh, and in, in he so he you know he formalized it. He wrote these long treatises, um, and his arguments were based not on intuition but uh, reason and logic, at least as it was understood in the 17th century. And he put put he formalized it into the language of um of 17th century philosophy <clears throat> and he drew out the implications of the formulation even into the political order so it, it had an influence on you know founding of the american republic you know, there's <clears throat> and you know it's influenced scientists and i can count myself as one um and um and you know i think this quote of Spinoza's kind of um, uh, is meaningful to me. Uh, the greater our knowledge of natural phenomena, the more perfect is our knowledge of God's essence. So as we're studying science, what, is, what does that mean? It means nature is God's revelation and science is its true theology. So yeah, we scientists, we're, we're the true theologists. <laughs> um, yeah, so... And, and so I, I believe that there's logic and complexity in the workings of the natural world that inspire a sense of beauty, wonder, and awe. And um, for me, the study of biology in particular, uh, down to the molecular level, provides exquisite illustrations. And so I'm gonna show you these illustrations. You know, I'll, I'll give a little explanation, and then I'm gonna show you some videos um, that illustrate this this beauty and, and and wonder and awe that I experience in 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 seeing the workings of nature down on the molecular level, and and so um, and when you watch these things, you might think, well, this is miraculous, you know, <laughs> and it's true, it is miraculous. But I would say that the miracle of nature is that there are no miracles. Nature follows the dictates of logic and reason based on observation. In experimentation, and so this is kind of a, a guiding uh, thought of of mine. Oops. So <clears throat> I'm going to start um, with the central dogma of molecular biology, uh, which I think most of you are familiar with. This idea that DNA goes to RNA, goes to proteins. So DNA, that's where our genes are. Uh, it's the basis of heredity um, and you know but and, and DNA is a code and it's a code for what it's a code for proteins and so the proteins get made you know so so the DNA is code the proteins get made and the proteins then do things in the cell and the body um, and so DNA is this uh, double helix the famous double helix uh, and, and I'll talk about this more in a moment uh, and and it, it's it's basically it's a polymer of nucleic acids, and um, of uh, yeah, and and these get uh, transcribed into RNA, which is also a nucleic acid. So it's transcribed, 
the, the, the DNA and RNA are really in the same language. They're in the language of nucleic acids. And then RNA is what gets translated into proteins. It's a translation. You're going from the language of nucleic acids to the language of proteins. And so I'll, I'll explain that. I'm going to explain DNA replication and this process of transcription and translation. And so the double helix, here it is, um, famously um, first described by uh, Watson and Crick uh, with data that they effectively stole from Rosalind Franklin, uh, which needs to be, we could have a whole program about that, right? <laughs> um, yes, but you know, they, they first described this, uh, the, the double helix structure uh, in, in this kind of detail where uh, it, it's, it's a polymer of, of um, what are called nucleotides. And the nucleotides are made up of three components, a sugar, a phosphate, and a base. A sugar and a phosphate and a base. And the, the sugar and the phosphate link together uh, to form a chain, this sugar phosphate backbone. And in the middle, these two strands uh, meet and are connected by these bases. Uh, these nitrogenous bases, which we'll just call G, C, T, and A. And they pair up. They always pair up in this way, G with C and A with T. And so Watson and Crick described this structure in, in a famous paper in the journal Nature. Um, and, you know, when they described this um, structure, they, they, they said it is not going to unnoticed by us that in this structure, you, you can actually appreciate how DNA gets replicated. And, and it's because of this, this pairing mechanism that there's already, you can see that this pairing of the, ba of the bases, there's, there's an implied mechanism of how you could replicate the DNA. And it's like this. So those two strands can come apart. <clears throat> and when they come apart, you've got the C's and the T's and the A's you know, by themselves, unpaired. And so the DNA polymerase that's going to replicate the DNA, what it does is one at a time, it puts in the bases that match. And so you get two new strands with that are, that are you know, you make new complementary strands. So it's right there in the sequence. You take it apart and there's the template to make two new strands. It's really, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's so elegant. I mean, this is an example, right? Isn't it? Isn't that elegant? Um, and so I thought it would be worthwhile to show you um, a video of how this happens. And it looks like I can't do that unless I I get out of pointer mode here and laser pointer mode. Uh, What? Hmm. Can you do command? Well, <sighs> huh. I am having trouble uh, getting out of the, the pointer option. I guess I just, there we go. Here we go. Here we go. I got it. DNA replication is carried out by a molecular machine called the Replizone that pulls apart the double helix and makes an exact copy of each strand. In this visualization, we're going to examine the mechanism for copying DNA.
The enzyme DNA polymerase synthesizes DNA molecules, using the original molecule as a template for the production of a complementary strand. The genetic code in the template strand is paired to pre-floating bases, matching cytosine to guanine and adenine to thymine. DNA polymerase creates an exact copy of your DNA code, making less than one mistake in a billion bases. Yeah, so less than a hundred, a bit less than one mistake in a hundred billion, a hundred billion bases. Um, and so, you know, it's not perfect, but that's pretty good. <laughs> but I, I wanted to point out that um, it, it does make the occasional mistake. And that actually is very important in driving evolution. There would be no evolution if it made always made an exact copy. If there were never any mistakes, there'd be no basis to, to, to you know, to, uh, for, for evolution. So I'm, I'm not going to get into that, but I thought that was important to, to mention. Okay, so back to transcription. So isn't that amazing? <laughs> I mean, you watch that and it's like, this is happening all the time in all our cells. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, uh, and so, yes, this idea of uh, DNA is this code for proteins. You need to do transcription and then translation uh, in into proteins. And so how does that happen? So, again, there's an another wonderful... Uh, illustration here. Here is a cell, the basic unit of all living tissue. In most human cells, there is a structure called the nucleus. The nucleus contains the genome. In humans, the genome is split between 23 pairs of chromosomes. Each chromosome contains a long strand of DNA tightly packaged around proteins called histones. Within the DNA are sections called genes. These genes contain the instructions for making proteins. When a gene is switched on, an enzyme called RNA polymerase attaches to the start of the gene. It moves along the DNA, making a strand of messenger RNA out of three bases in the nucleus. The DNA code determines the order in which the three bases are added to the messenger RNA. This process is called transcription. Before the messenger RNA can be used as a template for the production of proteins, it needs to be processed this involves removing and adding sections of RNA. The messenger RNA then moves out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm. Protein factories in the cytoplasm, called ribosomes, bind to the messenger RNA. The ribosome reads the code in the messenger RNA to produce a chain made up of amino acids. 
there are 20 different types of amino acid. Transfer RNA molecules carry the amino acids to the ribosome. The messenger RNA is read three bases at a time. As each triplet is read, a transfer RNA delivers the corresponding amino acid. This is added to a growing chain of amino acids. Once the last amino acid has been added, the chain folds into a complex 3D shape to form the protein. Yeah, again, I mean, this is really remarkable. Um, this is going on all the time, many times, yeah, in, 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 in all of our cells at any given moment. <clears throat> and so, you know, so if you, I don't know if you caught this, but it's a three-letter code for the amino acids. And so it's, a, it's literally a code, and this is the code. <laughs> um, you know, so if you, you follow, the, the, if, the first, if the first base, the first letter is U, the second is U, and the third is U, you end up coding for um, an amino acid called phenylalanine. Um, and so each of the uh, um, amino acids has at least one of these three-letter codes. And there, there's even a code to stop the, <laughs> the protein. Okay, you've reached the end. Stop translating into protein. Um, and the, the reason I'm showing you this is because this is evidence that, uh, for evolution and that we're all re re related. You know, the genetic code, this here, is the same for all forms of life. Bacteria, everything, <laughs> um, and so I think it's it's literally written into the code of our DNA that all life on this planet is related, which I think is amazing. <laughs> you know, and, and and you know, so I I think it's amazing. It's much more interesting. You know, I was explaining this to my partner Missy, and 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 she she said, "Well, this is way more interesting than the idea that you know uh, God just said, poof, you're a goat, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> let there be light, or something like that." So we'll get out of the uh, nucleus and uh, talking about DNA and RNA, um, and 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 talk about um, uh, the mitochondria in the cytoplasm. So the mitochondria is an organelle inside the cell, and it's famously called the, you know, the powerhouses of the cell um, because it, it's responsible for making most of the um, energy we, we, that drives our body, the ATP. You know, everybody's heard of ATP is the energy molecule. Um, and mitochondria are essential for that. You know, we, we just couldn't exist without <laughs> our mitochondria. And I'm showing you kind of a cutaway cartoon um, structure of a mitochondria to, to point out that uh, several things, you know, for, uh, mitochondria has its own DNA. It has its own DNA separate from what the cell, rest of the cell has in the nucleus. It has its own ribosomes that make the proteins. Uh, and um, it has this sort of double membrane, an inner membrane and an outer membrane. And, and it, it, this, this, this structure and the fact that it has its own uh, DNA and, and ribosomes, it, it, it's actually very related to um, certain bacteria, certain bacteria. And so there's the idea that, um, you know, our, 
we, we, we're called eukaryotes. The kind of cells we have are eukaryotic cells. And it's defined by having um, organelles and things. One of the things is it has organelles inside, such as, such as mitochondria. And so the, this, this idea that, um, the, is that the mi mitochondria was derived um, from bacteria that in, on the young earth, um, uh, cells took on certain um, oxygen-breathing bacteria and, and co-opted them, and they became the mitochondria. Um, and so, yeah, the mitochondria in animal cells are related to oxygen-breathing bacteria. And on the flip side, um, uh, there are photosynthetic bacterium that are, are believed to uh, be the origin of um, chloroplasts in plant cells. So chloroplasts are kind of the, the counterpart of mitochondria in plant cells. They're responsible for making the energy. And they, they don't use oxygen in the making of, of the energy. They, they, use, they use light. And so... Um, you know, so this idea of, of this symbiosis with bacteria, uh, it, it made all animal and, and plant life possible. And to me, it's yet another amazing example of the, the beauty, the wonder, the awe <laughs> that nature inspires. Uh, and so, yes, so the mitochondria is very important for making ATP. This is such an important process. Um, and so there's a nice video of, of how the mitochondria do that. There's an enzyme that makes the ATP. It's in the mitochondrial membrane, and how it does it is, is really quite, quite interesting. All life on Earth depends on this tiny energetic molecule, adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. ATP drives biochemical activity inside your living cells and is a key building block of DNA and RNA. Generate ATP for your living cells are mitochondria, electrochemical batteries that convert energy from the food you eat and oxygen from the air you breathe into ATP. So where does your ATP come from? Deep inside your mitochondria, roads and molecular motors generate ATP, the molecule essential for all life on Earth. Enzymes bring together reactants to form a chemical bond, converting mechanical energy into chemical energy. A ring of enzymes work in step creating three molecules of ATP with each cycle. Inside the molecular motor, a rotating axle powers the sequence. The axle is attached to a rotary molecular motor, moved by the force of protons pushing from the other side of the membrane. A difference in proton concentration propels the molecular synthesis of ATP. ATP drives biochemical activity inside your living cells and is a key building block of DNA and RNA.
Yeah, so it's it's literally this molecular motor, <laughs> and 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 what's driving the motor is a proton gradient across the membrane. Um, you know, this little difference. There's high high protons on the inside, and they're they're get to get out. It has to go through the ATP making motor, and so it's really quite uh, quite astonishing. So. Um, you know, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip. There's well, very quickly. Um, I just wanted to give you an example. I mean, ATP is used for all kinds of uh, uh, things in in the cell and in the body. And just as one example, it drives the transport of materials across uh, the axon of of nerve cells. So you know, here's a nerve cell body. Here's uh, this, this distant uh, site where there, there are synapses talking to other neurons, um, and it's very, you know, it's very important to get materials to and from um, uh, these the synapses. And there are little molecular motors that that do that, that you know, bring materials along what's called microtubules. Uh, and you know, if there are mutations in these um, uh, processes. Uh, this is linked to neurological diseases. And so I just wanted to show you an example of one of these motor proteins doing its thing. And there are no words with this. So yeah, this is a... <laughs> ATP is basically driving the motion of this um, motor protein uh, along the microtubules. It's like it's walking. And meanwhile, you know, it's like uh, Atlas carrying this humongous vesicle <laughs> along the axon uh, to the to the synapse. So I thought that was a nice illustration. Just one. That's one of many, many examples, you know, countless examples of, of ATP being used um, uh, in, in, in biology. So I'm going to finish up here and I'm going to leave Richard Feynman with the final word. So Richard Feynman, you know, a leading um, physicist of the 20th century, uh, he said, I have a friend who's an artist and has sometimes taken a view which I don't agree with very well. He holds up a flower and says, look how beautiful it is, and I'll agree. Then he says, I, as an artist, can see how beautiful this is, but you as a scientist take this all apart and it becomes a dull thing. And I think he's kind of nutty. First of all, the beauty that he sees is available to other people, and to me too, I believe. Although I may not be quite as refined aesthetically as he is, I can appreciate the beauty of a flower. And at the same time, I can see much more about the flower than he sees. I could imagine the cells in there, the complicated actions inside, which also have a beauty. I mean, it's not just beauty at this dimension, at one centimeter. There's also beauty at smaller dimensions the inner structure in the processes, the fact that the colors in the flower evolved in order to attract insects to pollinate is interesting. It means that insects can see color. It adds a question. Does this aesthetic sense also exist in lower forms? Why is it aesthetic? All kinds of interesting questions which the science knowledge only adds to the excitement, the mystery and the awe of the flower. It only adds. I don't understand how it subtracts. And so with that, we have some questions.
All right, let's have those questions. I'll give the folks on the Zoom an opportunity after John. Well, I have a laundry list, but I'll just uh, ask them one at a time and give everybody else a chance. If you would like to have some of this marvelous complexity unpacked for you in a more sane way, I recommend a book at Lawrence Public Library called Molecular Biology for Dummies. <laughs> And I can tell you it's it's for a little bit more than dummies because I had to read it very carefully and I did have to skip over some of the charts, but it really is basically a great book and it talks about exactly the same stuff that Mike has been talking about. Now part two and then I will shut up. If we go all back to Spinoza and Locke and, and the deists, which were translated as dentists, by the way, <laughs> on our, uh, our translator. The problem uh, with, with them, I see, is they leave out the major problem of the human condition. They talk about creation and, you know, where all the wonders of the world come from, but they don't talk about human suffering and justice and repentance and sin and salvation and so forth. So, and I don't know, when you, when you were saying these people were being condemned as heretics, you're using the passive voice. I don't know if, he, if Bernard Benedict was being condemned by his fellow Jews by the Pope or or by other folks, but I'm going to leave my question with what's missing from deism that, that left it as kind of an isolate and not terribly successful as, as the years rolled by? Um, well, you know, so, so deism is a little bit different from what Spinoza was saying. Uh, so deism is like there, there is an external God um uh but that the created the universe but then you know it was created in a way where there's just you know um uh uh it, it'll run itself basically it's the watchmaker <laughs> it's the the watchmaker god created the watch the watch runs on its own and so um you know, yeah, it really doesn't. I mean, and if God's not intervening, what do you what do you do with that? How does that help you <laughs> uh, solve you know human problems, societal problems? I mean, basically, God doesn't have a role. So, uh, I, you know, so it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Why did Deism die out, as it were? Um, and but but I think we're still left with Spinoza. <laughs> And uh, this idea that na na nature and God are one of the same. Uh, are there any questions? And, from and this? I should say the implication is, you know, um, that, uh, you know, in terms of solving these human problems, um, we we're, we're on our own. We, we need that. We need to solve them ourselves. You know, so that's the implication. And so it could be said that uh, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Are, are there any questions from folks on Zoom? Okay, I see a hand waving from Louise from Joyce Pearl. Let's start with Louise and, and then we'll do Joyce Pearl. Can, can you hear me now? Um, yes. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. That was just, I'm just totally wonderful. I might just add a small uh, note that I believe uh, Mike is not an, an emeritus professor, 
but rather a distinguished professor of medicinal chemistry. So he's not quite retired yet. We can, <laughs> we can see. But yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not emeritus, but uh, I'm also not distinguished. So, <laughs> well, well uh, in, in, our, in our eyes, indeed, you are. Uh, in any event, thank you so much. Uh, my question is um, that. Uh, just human beings out there in the world have a hard time relating to this marvelous story that you just unfolded for us. It's much easier to um, uh, understand concepts like not not quite poof you're a code, but but um, uh, to to identify uh, with the human condition on on terms that are more accessible. And so I wonder how one would ever translate this kind of message to a larger population, uh, and so that they can uh, understand the implications of that for them. Yeah, it, it's it's quite difficult. I mean, yes, it's much easier for people to understand that, you know, God just said, let there be light and, you know, and just poof, there you're a goat there and he, poof, you're, you're a man, you're a woman and so forth. Um, and nothing in between, I should say, <laughs> um, according to, to the theology. Uh, it, it's much harder to understand this. Um, I mean, to really appreciate it, you really have to get know the details. You have to you have to think. <laughs> I mean, no offense to. <laughs> oh, oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> it's just like clear up one little point here. Uh, clear up one little point here. Um, Emeritus versus Meritus. Mike is the M E R T E S Meritus Professor, not yeah. Emeritus. Yeah, Mertes. The Mertes. The, the, the Matthias P. Mertes. Okay. Emeritus. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Um, okay, I think Joyce Pearl had her hand up. Come in. Yeah, you're you're muted, uh, Joyce Pearl. Can you unmute? I'm on you. Thank you, Michael, for that wonderful talk. Um, uh, I would like to go back and get a dictionary and <laughs> see if I can understand more what you're saying. My, my apologies. Um, <laughs> no, no apology is necessary. Your uh, vocabulary is is what it is. And uh, I'm sure your uh, smarter students enjoy it a great deal. I, I wonder how you came to Unitarian Universalism. I just would like a little personal story. Uh, <laughs> well, I have a whole odyssey on that, actually. <laughs> I mean, maybe I can share you the recording of that. Just a, just a five minutes would be really helpful. Because... Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that that is actually quite quite a story. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just um, uh, happened upon a, a, a Unitarian um uh, a congregation in Newton, Massachusetts, um, that would always have an interesting sign on the outside uh, that uh, uh, they would change every month. And I, I went there, and and that just really kind of opened my eyes. Uh, that that was really the defining moment, I think. So, how old were you when that happened? Uh, let's see. Um, I was fifty-four. <laughs> And you're 25 now. Never, never too old to <laughs> be transformed. Okay, I see uh, Missy's hand. Then we'll give some folks in the arena a chance. Missy, uh, you're up next. You have to unmute. 
Okay, wait, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so, so my question is this. If you look at the order of creation that is presented in the book of Genesis, do you think that that is um, reflective of the actual order of evolution? In other words, in, in the Bible, do we see um, sort of a recapitulation in story form of how, how evolution actually occurred? Yeah, no, no. I mean, there's, there's some, there's, maybe there's some parallels because I think plants happened before, you know, at least the animals that we know. <laughs> um, but no, basically not. And I think it's important to remember that uh, in, in evolution, it's not like uh, we came from apes, you know, uh, it's that we and apes have the same common ancestor. And so when we go back in time, they, they just weren't the same species. They weren't the same forms of life. You know, what we have now is what's evolved. And we are related to those earlier forms that we find in the fossil records and, and so forth. But uh, yeah. Okay, Mike, thanks for a wonderful presentation. And you remind us that uh, all belief systems are attempts at cosmology, right? H how do we explain that we got from chaos to cosmos? And the march of human history has been marching in the direction of science. And the, the, the level of analysis that you're providing us here is the, is the base for everything. It, it then leads to evolution and the organisms that currently exist. The human organism has evolved in such a way that it has an elaborate uh, brain going in multiple directions simultaneously. And this is, I think, where we get to the answer to your question, um, which I might try to undertake a, a thought or two on later this year in this forum. But I, I think that um, the, the wonderful thing about science is that it, it doesn't stop at mystery. It seeks understanding uh, through the method of reason. Um, and that's, that's how all the other fields of analysis help us to understand what in the hell we're in the middle of now. But uh, you, you've started a conversation Michael, that I think we're we're all going to continue. This is wonderful. Well, I, I, in related to that, I saw a, an interesting uh, thing uh, on uh, this morning. It said, "I'd rather I'd rather have uh, questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned." A wonderful presentation, Mike. Um, uh, going back to uh, Genesis uh, a little bit, and also to, uh, sorry, and also to your, um, to the presentations, uh, you know, so what's interesting is that all of life, as you said, is based on basically the, those, well, transcription and other processes, and this, I guess you would call it a three-letter alphabet. Right. 
and uh, and because it a chemical it's a four-letter four alphabet, but it's a three-letter code. Three-letter code, yeah. right? Of the four using the four bases, right. um, and um, so going all the way back to the the real question that is interesting, going going back to the creation story, is how did that get started? And, well, and is it possible elsewhere other than on Earth? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it drives from the human need to try to understand where this all came from, you know, how we came to be. And so what did we do before, you know, the, the age of science? Uh, we made things up. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's what they are. These creation myths are exactly that. They're myths. That, and they're, they're myths that were created to um, help us it makes sense of things, you know, because otherwise, you know, we just didn't understand, you know, how this could possibly be. I mean, there must be a God that created it all because it's so amazing. But then when you start picking it apart, you, you, you see, well, there actually, it does make sense. I mean, it's still amazing, but it makes sense without an anthropomorphic God that somehow created it all out of nothing. Hello. Um, so I'm the artist with the flowers, right? <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, but I really enjoyed this. Um, and you know what? I think it all comes down to education. I'm an educator as well. And um, I did not get to study chemistry in high school or college. So I'm still trying to catch up with what are the bases and what are the acids and whatever that is. So I'm going to check out the microbiology <laughs> for dummies. Anyway, but um, when I got my doctorate, I actually got to dig deep into philosophy because I was really curious about why the disciplines are so separate. And, it, and, and philosophy is really at that core. And um, I studied Deleuze who was influenced by Spinoza. So I, that's why I came. And, um, but the flowers and seeing them, but then understanding the whole ecology of them is I think how you can certainly draw kids in, into that. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, I really wish we could teach more philosophy at a very early age and that idea of thinking because it's so central to all of our understandings and then catch up on the bases and the acids and stuff <laughs> because I really wish I just understood the basics and I feel so ignorant in that. Anyway, and my other question was, so it sounds like you do Alzheimer's research to a degree. So if you can give us to a degree, <laughs> to any degree. Um, yeah. If you could just give us a, a word about um, you know what we have to look forward to. Oh boy! Well, yeah, that's a, a whole a whole other discussion. Um, but I will say that we are about to submit uh, to the journal Nature uh, a, a manuscript, a study, a collabor large collaborative study we did that we're pointing to what we think is the trigger of Alzheimer's disease, and it's not what people think that it's not this amyloid protein that deposits in the brain. It's actually the stall process of trying to make that amyloid that is triggering it. It's not, so the amyloid is an epiphenomenon, or at least we think it may be an epiphenomenon. Um, 
that comes along in parallel with the real problem. So again, if we get the paper published, I might give you a program about that. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's the preview of our next program. Okay, we don't draw overtime, so another big thank you. listening. Now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon following immediately and for the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. Followed by the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.